This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, you're listening to the Times Redbox Politics Podcast. I'm Patrick Maguire, in for Matt Chorley, who, yes, is still off. On today's show, I consider the question of whether Edward VIII would have presided over a different Britain and a very different monarchy had he not abdicated this week in 1936. Spoke to Andrew Lowney and Anthony Selden, eminent historians both for that one. But first, time for our columnist panel with James Forsyth and Melanie Reid. The Columnists with Formel, James Forsyth and Melanie Reid on Times Radio. It's Friday, so it's time for our two favourite and given it's about called the hardest working columnist in the business, Melanie Reed and James Forsyth, our favourite cheese duo. Who writes this? <laughs> for Mel. Uh, morning, James. Morning, Patrick. How are you? I'm very well. Glad to be here on this uh, on this sunny Friday morning. There's nothing I'd rather be doing, of course, than speaking to you and Mel. Morning, Mel. Hello, Patrick. Are you both having a nice uh, Jubilee weekend? Are you very quiet? Yes, but I'm 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 good. Yes, I'm going out for lunch, which is quite a, quite a nice thing to do. Uh, James, any street parties? Uh, no, I, I'm I'm quite concerned because I've got tickets to the cricket on Sunday, but seeing as 17 wickets fell yesterday, I'm not quite sure whether I'm going to make it or not. Yeah, I'm not sure there'll be much cricket to watch uh, by then. Uh, sadly, um, God, you must be uh, you must be there'll be plenty more empty seats at Lords uh, given the given the state of. Uh, of England so far, but anyway, let's talk about something even more, uh, even more shaky, which is the state of Boris Johnson's leadership, James, which you've written about, of course, in the uh, in the Times this morning in your column, not respecting the truce unilaterally called by Tory MP Tobias Selwood. You say uh, the Tories are trapped between mutiny and paralysis, which I think is a nice way of thinking about it. We are, uh, you know, it's the equivalent of playing football in the in the trenches at the minute, isn't it? I think the problem they've got is they are fundamentally split on the leadership question. You know, if the 54 letters go in and there is a no confidence ballot, Boris Johnson won't win it overwhelmingly. I think I think, you know, those who know the parliamentary party best think he would probably win it by a smaller margin than Theresa May won her vote in uh, 2018. Uh but if he loses it, he will lose it by a very narrow margin too. And and I think this is the problem that it's very hard to see how you pull the Tory party back together after this. Because, you know, if he carries on, if he wins, the rebels will keep going. They'll keep saying, well, hang on a second. 
you know, people didn't know this when they voted, the 22 should change the rules and allow another ballot. There'll be that constant drumbeat. And also remember that because of this Privileges Committee investigation, this whole Partygate story isn't going to go away. But if he loses and you end up in a leadership contest, you know, one Tory who's considering sending in a letter said, you know, that he worries about a kind of Mark Antony candidate in those circumstances, someone who kind of runs on the, uh, runs essentially on a platform of, 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 obeying, of avenging the slain leader. And so I think this is, I think this is just so difficult for the Tories because they, they're, they are, they are split on the question of leadership, and I don't see how they can resolve that because this isn't about policy. This is about uh, about the individual at the top. Do you think the rebels? And I'm always loath to use a term like rebels, but because it implies a degree of centrally planned organisation. Now it depends on who you talk to, whether you believe that to be true. But I think the reason this coup has developed such momentum is that it isn't a. There is no yeah. grid. There is no. It's a genuinely organic drip, drip, drip in the wake of. Um, in the wake of Sue Gray and, and events last weekend, but uh, and in, so in that respect, this is almost a slightly facile or um, you know I'm looking askance at the wrong question almost. But do you think the question of timing? You know, they've timed it so they've had to call uh, a sort of self-enforced truce over the Jubilee weekend, and even if there is a vote next week, um, Johnson might win it, and then you're looking down the barrel of two by-elections. The Tories are very pessimistic about winning. Do you think? that it's a rather inopportune time to to pull the trigger. Yeah, I think this is an organic kind of uprising. I don't think there is anyone with a spreadsheet coordinating it all. And I think what, what you're seeing is some of the more experienced people who want to get rid of Johnson are, are telling people, hang on a second, just, just wait. Wait until these two by-elections on June the 23rd because, you know, that'll be a moment of much greater danger. You know, I was talking to one of Boris Johnson's cabinet allies this week and they were saying, you know, look, that that week after the by elections, that is the moment of maximum vulnerability because you know Wakefield being lost will freak out the red wall, Tiverton being lost will freak out the blue wall, and you'll have Tory MPs on, on, on at both ends of the party worried about the state of their seats and whether they can hold on to them or not. And so I think this is you know I think that you, I think what you will see in, 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 in slightly kind of comic scenes on Monday will be some of the more experienced people who want Boris Johnson to go trying to intercept some of some of the some of the younger people on their way to to see Graham Brady say, no, 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 not now. Wait, wait two weeks. That'd be a much better time for this. Mel, there's a great line in James's column, a quote from a, uh, a Tory MP who notes that Boris Johnson look, makes Harry Houdini look like Mr Bean, such as his ability to uh, escape even the tightest of binds when you think he's, uh, when you think he's about to drown in the chains at the bottom of the, at the, bottom of the tank, he uh, suddenly escapes and, and swims to the surface. But from where you're sitting, do you think... You know, do you look at this and think this is the last days of Boris Johnson? I well, you know, I I, I do, and I I listen to you guys, and I'm I'm out with the Westminster bubble, and from where I sit, and from where an awful lot of of, of, of people listening to this show will sit, is this extraordinary distortion of priorities between what's best for the country and what's best for the Prime Minister. You know, that's that's what is going on at the moment. Is this 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 survival fight of this? Of this man, who I think the polls now show that the majority of people um, don't trust or, or or have much faith in, and and the, there's another line in James's column about about you know the, the disliking uh, dislike of, of, of MPs who are you know quote spending too much time with their inboxes, in other words, they're listening to their constituents, you know, which is their job, and you know it that is that. It's that kind of um, absolute Kafkaesque use of, 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 
of um, what matters here. And uh, you know, I'm embarrassed for nice, honest Tories. I really am. I, I, I just think we're we've got ourselves into this. It's 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 um, it's you know it's good drama. I'm enjoying the 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 drama, but it's pretty sad, really, isn't it? I'm looking at the pictures now, James, of Boris Johnson arriving at St Paul's in his in his morning suit. He seems to be getting a lot out of the high feet for that one. Um, and the greatest asset he has at the minute, isn't it? I think it's fair to say, if you talk to Tory MPs as as uh, as we do daily, is the slightly underwhelming field of potential successors. You know, there's a consensus that Rishi Sunak has had too difficult a spring. Um, Liz Truss, uh, MPs are far from enamoured with uh, the notion of a Liz Truss leadership. And then you're looking at sort of slightly second order candidates who are either unproven in cabinet or indeed aren't in the cabinet at all. And, you know, as I look at Boris Johnson climbs the steps to St Paul's, you know, incumbency is a huge asset for him. He is the only, he is the Prime Minister. It's difficult to imagine in the minds of Tory MPs, anybody doing that job at the minute, isn't it? Do you think that's a fair assessment of, you know, what's staying in their hands? Look, Tory leadership contests are always more like the Grand National than the Derby because, you know, they are unpredictable. The favourite often falls early on. But I think what, what you, I think there, there is a divide in, in, in Boris Johnson's inner circle about how seriously to take all this, um, this current speculation about leadership challenges. You know, some people are the view, look, you know, they haven't, you know, th- th- these rebels don't agree on, on, they don't have an agreed successor. And therefore, this thing is going to peter out for, for that reason. Because, you know, some of the people writing letters want Jeremy Hunt, some of the people writing letters want this trust, some of the people let, writing letters want somebody else. You know, and so at some point, you know, the, the the theory goes that people will look around and, and think, "Oh my word, I have no idea." If I if I if I if we pull the lever, we've no idea who's going to end up as our leader and as our prime minister, and and that will make people stay their hands. I mean, that that is one of the big things that, that Johnson allies will go on when MPs come back to Parliament next week. But I think the kind of I think the question for them is, and this would be what I think worries some other people in Johnson's inner circle is that you know, all, these letters are almost expressions of, of, of just of just sheer frustration. You know, the, the people have, you know, the reason that there isn't an organised plot, uh, as you said, Patrick, is because people can't agree on, you know, what, what the right, when the right time to strike is, you know, who the preferred successor is. But I think what you see in a lot of these letters is people are just fed up to the back teeth of all of this drama. Aren't we all? Uh, and that's quite enough politics yeah. for uh, bank holiday, uh, I think. Uh, uh, you know, as, the, as we begin to uh, you know give thanks to the Queen, let's move on to something that's stressing out real people, shall we? The absolute chaos uh, at airports. The boss of Ryanair today has advocated bringing in the army. You know, the state has thoroughly failed when uh, people make that appeal. Um, Mel, what do you think is behind? all of this do you think it's uh you know we've forgotten how to do everything as a consequence of lockdown or do you think the government have messed this one up well i think i I should say at the outset i have skin in the game my son works in the aviation industry so i'm uh, you know i i i kind of i i see another side to it um I think there was during during covid the aviation industry was was left to swing in the wind there was very little support um, they had to. Uh, they lost. They had to, to pay off an awful lot of people. An awful lot of people were made redundant, and to rehire those people um, requires lots of training and vetting. Security staff, air crew, ground crew, 
these aren't people that you can just um, they, they, they're not they're not driving delivery lorries. They they have really uh, important responsibilities. So after mass redundancies, and because there wasn't the same support for this industry that many others got, um, it 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 ta- it's an, also an industry that takes an enormous amount of time to get going again. Um, and so yes, I really understand the frustration, but I think that. Um, there's an awful lot of blame game going, which is slightly unfair. Uh, I think people have got too used to cheap flights. Um, and I think, uh, you know, we, 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 have to, we have to understand, I, I really understand how poor people feel about not being able to get away. It, it must be horrible. But there are two sides to this story. And do, but do you worry, you know, do you and your son worry that this will put people flying off uh, people are flying all together, you know, a three-mile queue at the airport waiting in the car park to just go through security. Do, do you worry that this is going to make us... But it sounds like you think it's a good thing that this might make us reassess our attitude to, you know, finishing work on a Friday and ending up drinking sangria in a uh, Spanish uh, square by 10 o'clock. I, I, I remember reading that there was something recently, a, a report which showed that the one thing that people keep they they cut down their their other subscriptions they cut out luxuries but the one thing they all look forward to is a summer holiday and i think it's it's something which uh, almost every family craves and needs so i think i think the aviation industry will continue and will be needed but i do think there will have to be maybe we'll have to see prices going up um and you know Maybe that's a good thing for the for the world for the for the climate for the climate as well. James Grant Shapps is in a tricky situation, isn't he, the transport secretary? Because you've got these huge queues at airports, uh, you've got people's bank holidays being ruined. You get the inevitable clamour for the government to do something, anything. And as I was saying earlier, you know, Michael O'Leary saying bring in the army. You know that um, the government is scrabbling around for a solution when it's facing that call. What, but what can Grant Shapps do? What, what is the mood in government about this? Do they, do they feel that um, they have to do something or is this something the aviation industry and the airports are going to have to solve themselves? Uh, I think the first thing is that this isn't a uniquely British phenomenon. You know, you look at the queues at Dublin Airport or Schiphol Airport and, and, and they, are, they, are, they are almost as bad. I think the problem is it's this classic post-COVID problem, which is the demand comes back much faster than the supply. And I think the problem has been compounded by the fact that the aviation industry is keen to make up for several lean years, you know, laid on lots of flights. And people, and as Melanie said, people have this pent-up demand for some guaranteed sunshine. That's that's why people so look forward to in this country to going abroad, because you know, you, you can be you can be certain of the weather in a way that you can't be here. And, and so I mean you've had this, this huge problem this half term. And I think the the other issue is, you know, what are what is the government doing about the labour shortages? You know, um, Fraser Nelson, um, my colleague, that's about to say to my editor there, he's written a piece today about having five point three million people now on uh, out of work benefits in this country, and you know, uh, and the, the percentage of immigrants in the workforce is, is as high as it's ever been, and so the question becomes, you know, what are you doing to get people? back to work and how can you speed up this process so that you don't end up with people in you know as, as melanie was saying you know taking taking months and months and months to go through security checks when they're needed urgently and it's interesting you know you talk about the labor market and um you know staff shortages 
and then we're back into the other great uh, great imponderable for the government which is how um how do you encourage people to you know are we encouraging rate, wage restraint or are we um you know it's a very hot labor market and then we're back to the big inflation question aren't we the the question that's haunting everyone yeah and i i think this is this is the problem i mean there is also a particular problem about the aviation industry uh, as melanie was saying about you know basically they they laid off a lot of staff and and it and it's a long process to hire people back or people have gone into other jobs you know you you can't walk round anywhere in, in 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 the uk at the moment without seeing you know notices saying that the that, that, that firms are looking for work for, for workers and i mean this is a this is a really big challenge and I, but i also think that the aviation industry you know they tried to get back up to full capacity without knowing that they had the ability to deliver that and i think that is a, a real mistake and i mean there is a slight cheek uh, of uh, michael o'leary to be suggesting that this is you know that the army should be called in that this is all the government's fault and i can't let either of you go you thought you might have escaped it without talking about the jubilee briefly we've obviously had the pomp and circumstance we've got the service at um, uh, St Paul's today. We've had Trooping the Colour yesterday. The beacons were lit last night. But what does this make you think about the future of the whole thing, Mel? Obviously, um, this might be the last jubilee any of us experienced, but is, does this sort of have the ring of a, perhaps a goodbye to the monarchy as we know it for you? I think it's one of the reasons it was all uh, quite throat-catching, um, why you did uh, see some you know big strong blokes in tears on on, on the interviewed on the mail yesterday um you know there was this there was that sense of a, quite a glorious a glorious send-off um and and a unification she fills all our lives um we've never known anything else and i think we all know it's 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 coming to a close she is she is the, the giles granny with the sporting the sporting post under her arm and we will we will miss her enormously when we're gone so yes i i do think it it what happened yesterday was was um it was it was rather lovely yeah and james the last moment of elizabethan certainty do you think uh, i think that one of the the queen's most remarkable achievements is that this is that the succession will be so uncontroversial um, in this country, I'm, I'm not saying that that's the same in Australia and, and other such places, but um, I think that that is perhaps a great achievement. I also think that she is, as Melanie said, she is this she is the the physical embodiment of a link to the wartime generation and that that period in our history. And I think that that is what she embodies. And if you think that you know the events of of the last seventy years, you know she has been at all of them. Uh, and so this is this, this this thread, this this link, uh, this link back to the past. And I think that you know, I often think that when you think of that 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 image of her mourning alone at, at, at Prince Philip's funeral, I think you see there. I remember thinking, looking at that, and thinking, everyone else who went through an experience like that during the pandemic will feel a particular connection with her and i think that is the extent to which you know the, the royal family are are and this obviously gave them huge difficulties in the 80s and 90s but the royal family are the kind of family of the nation as well that was james forsyth and melanie reed on the big issues of the day now it's time to hear about edward yates This is the Red Box Politics Podcast. Now it's time for this. 
The Big Thing on Times Radio. In times when nothing stood but worsened or grew strange, there was one constant good. She did not change. That was Philip Larkin, of course, who else on the occasion of the Queen's Silver Jubilee 45 years ago. And it's a verse that speaks to what many Britons would see as the Queen's foremost, foremost virtues. Restraint, impartiality and moderation, even at times of the most intense political tumult. But what if it had all been different? Elizabeth is the only monarch most of us have ever known. Post-imperial Britain has grown up as she has through once unimaginable social, technological and cultural change. Yet it's all too easy to forget how contingent her reign and this weekend's celebrations really are. 50 years ago this week saw the death of the Queen's uncle, the monarch who was once Edward VIII, by then long exiled to France as Duke of Windsor. He ruled for just over 11 months in 1936 before giving up the throne to marry the twice-divorced American socialite Wallace Simpson on this very day in 1937. But you must believe me when I tell you that I have found it impossible to carry the heavy burden of responsibility and to discharge my duties as king as I would wish to do without the help and support of the woman I love. Incidentally, his best man when he married the woman he loved uh, turned out to be the grandfather of the guy who went on to found Pret-a-Manger, as if the abdication crisis wasn't a profound enough national trauma. Uh, Edward, of course, was the first English monarch to ever give up the throne voluntarily, a course of action his niece won't even contemplate at the rude old age of 96. His abdication came after a constitutional crisis that proved his determination to be a very different model of British monarch. Interventionist, outspoken on questions of foreign and domestic policy, drawn to controversial figures on the fringes of British politics like Winston Churchill and Oswald Mosley, and disdainful of the conventions that have made the Elizabethan age such a durable one. In the teeth of fierce opposition from the Church of England and his own government, Edward wanted to go over the heads of his ministers and ask the people directly to approve the marriage that they wouldn't, a move that might have upended the constitution as we have come to know it. And then, of course, there's the very small matter of his extensively recorded Nazi sympathies and collusion with Hitler's regime during the Second World War. Perhaps the better question is not what Britain and the monarchy would have looked like had he reigned for any longer than 11 months, but whether they would have existed in any recognisable form at all. No wonder his father, George V, prayed that nothing would come between his niece and the throne. These are big questions to contemplate on a day that celebrates uh, his niece's wrong lane, uh, uh, long reign and how unimaginable it is to think that things might have been different. So I spoke to Andrew Lowney, a historian and author of Traitor King, the definitive, definitive account of Edward VIII's wartime indiscretions, to get his view on what might have been. Yes, I mean, in some ways he thought himself as a moderniser. He wanted to interfere in constitutional matters. Uh, he did. Uh, he tried to change the Anglo-German naval agreement of 1935. Uh, he played down the remilitarization of the Rhineland in, in 1936. So, uh, in fact, the courtiers were so concerned about him. He differs from his niece in two factors. One is, is this lack of impartiality. And the other is the fact that he was extremely lazy and had no sense of public duty. Uh, and the courtiers, people like uh, Baldwin, prayed each day that he would die in a steeplechasing accident because the last thing they wanted was him to come to the throne. 
Uh, he had these cousins, Philip of Hesse, have just been in the news recently because of his maneuverings with the Pope. Uh, but he had various German cousins who were Nazi generals, and he was very close to them. They were used to target him to try and push Britain into the German sort of sphere of influence. Uh, he spoke fluent German. Uh, he saw himself as a German. He was 14th, 16th German. Uh, he believed in the Fuhrer Prinzip. In fact, to the end of his life, he thought Hitler was a good chap and remained anti-Semitic. Uh, and therefore, the Germans targeted him as Prince of Wales and as king uh, and were uh, distraught when the abdication came along. And one of the underlying themes of my book is that the abdication has to be seen in the light of his career afterwards, his, his sympathies for the Nazis. And I think part of the reason that the royal family froze him out was not so much the abdication, but the fact that they, they knew him to have been a tra traitor. George VI was monitoring this literally on a day-by-day -day basis. We know that from the, the archives at Windsor. Uh, he was copied into pretty much everything, and he had spies everywhere reporting back to him. Uh, and indeed, Baldwin didn't want uh, the, the, the Prince of Wales or then the king to have the red boxes because he was so indiscreet. Uh, and uniquely in British history, uh, the Prince of Wales was put under surveillance by his father, including Wallace. Uh, and that revealed that far from being a great love affair between the two of them, they were both having affairs with other people at the same time. So it's a very murky story. And if he had come to power or continued in power, uh, we would have probably come to an accommodation with the Germans. Uh, and the war would have been very different because the, we would probably have had sort of Nazis run, running up Pall Mall, but also all the forces would have been directed at the Soviet Union. Uh, and um, so we would have a very different post-war world there too. Uh, and indeed, a lot of writers have speculated about what would have happened, whether uh, if he continued in 1936 or in fact been brought back as a puppet king, as he hoped in 1940, uh, and what the consequences would have been. And and that's a, a really interesting theme, isn't it? The um, the question of his foreign policy priorities. You know, in later life, when he and Wallace were living uh, in the pocket of the Mosleys in in France, I remember Diana Mosley saying, um, you know, their view was very much that the uh, Hitler should have been given a free hand to to smash the Reds, as they put it, and that was how they envisioned the war unfolding. It seems remarkable, though, that we can speak so volubly about what a an inhabitant of the English throne, uh, the British throne rather, thought about anything, given that it would be impossible. Of course, we can speculate about what the Queen thinks about this geopolitical question or, or that domestic policy, but we'll never know uh, for certain because she um, you know, never, and obviously the job of a historian is to look at the documents as they emerge in, in due course. And, you know, as, as hacks today, we don't have that, uh, we don't have that privilege, but it seems remarkable that we can analyze in such depth what he thought about anything and another interesting question of course is the speech he would have given on uh, in the midst of the abdication crisis going directly over the heads of his ministers and asking the public essentially to give him direct um, uh, give him their direct approval for his union with Wallace Simpson and I think that isn't it that speech he was stopped from giving by Baldwin uh, in which he asked the public to take their time to consider this uh, hugely controversial marriage is a is another indicator, isn't it, of the fact that he had no regard for the conventions that have served his niece so well. I, you know, i.e., the idea that the uh, the crown can only work in Parliament with the consent of its ministers. He was determined to be 
Britain's first genuinely popular populist monarch, wasn't he? Yes, he was. And he did make a lot of changes. And, you know, he got rid of um, uh, various sort of uh, stuffy rules when he was there. I think he also had lost the will to fight. Uh, Wallace had threatened, had, had begged him to, to, to not go ahead with her. Uh, and she felt trapped in this marriage because he'd threatened to commit suicide. So, um, you know, she wanted to get out. Uh, and Churchill, who'd been, of course, the, the leader of the King's Party uh, in, during the abdication crisis, eventually realised, as he said, that our cock won't fight. So um, he was slightly persuaded not to say some things he wanted to say. And Winston Churchill wrote that abdication speech. But I think at the same time, he'd, he just lost his nerve. And it was only later when he realised he needed to pick himself up to, to Wallace and he realised what he'd lost, that, that he began to, to intrigue again. Uh, and he continued intriguing and trying to upstage his brother, really, from, um, from 1937 onwards uh, and um, behaved in mean, very similar parallels to the modern day. But there were debates over finances, over security, over curating the story, over the bad parenting, etc., and is there a case? Sorry, Andrew. Yeah. Is there a case for the defence to be made at all for Edward? Obviously, uh, we we look at the question of his Nazi sympathies, as your book does, um, so brilliantly, and clearly he was on the wrong side of the uh, the great geopolitical questions of the age, if you want to put it like that. But is there a case for the defence to be made in that he was a man clearly that superficially, at least, perhaps seemed alive to the great social challenges of the age. Um, Attlee praised his um, genuine solicitude for the unemployed upon his ascension to the throne. Interrupt you there. There was no genuine uh, solicitation for the underdog. He showed no interest in them. It was all spin at the time with the, with the Welsh miners. Uh, he never got involved in, in the, the, the 30 years after the abdication, any charitable work whatsoever. It was all about him. So, uh, uh, no, I mean, clearly his brother and, and other members of the family had been supporters of appeasement, but they realised that they couldn't negotiate with Hitler and they would have to go to war. And he didn't realise that. He was intriguing against Chamberlain in May 1940. He came back and tried to create a peace party. He tried to incite isolationists when he was sent to the Bahamas. He communicated with the Germans in code uh, during wartime, which was a, which was a capital offence. Uh, he hid his, his dealings with the Nazis. He didn't report them to the authorities. Uh, we have um, chapter and verse of this in captured German documents after the war, which, of course, the British establishment tried to suppress because they could see it was so embarrassing. So I think there's no, there's no good case to be made for um, the Duke of Windsor. I mean, people have in the past, uh, I, I'm afraid, uh, stepped back from, from drawing the obvious conclusions because... Most royal biographers are very deferential uh, and don't want to upset the royal family. They depend on the royal household and communications department for their access to material. But the fact is, it's perfectly clear, this man was a traitor to the country uh, and uh, it was well known from pretty early on. So this revisionist case that he was a reformer, a man of his age, is actually a mark, you'd say, given he was so determined to... Um, I think H.G. Wells had a lovely phrase that he was a gadfly reformer. You know, his determination to be a gadfly and to, um, you know, cock a, cock a snoot at the establishment was a, actually a reflection of sort of petulance and vanity more than any genuine philosophical or ideological belief in any of the causes he temporarily espoused for five minutes at a time. No, he was completely self-entitled and self-obsessed. Uh, he did nothing for anyone else. I mean, the book, my book is filled with stories of him being disloyal to people, 
letting people down, um, uh, being venal, uh, um, being corrupt, uh, covering up a murder, uh, dealing with currency infringements, black, black market currency work. And I'm afraid the man had no redeeming features whatsoever and we were saved by the abdication. Um, so I think all this spin about him being a modernizer is, 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 is just that. And, and one final question, Andrew. Uh, it's a question I've posed to other historians of the period. Um, in the event that he doesn't abdicate and we go into the war with Edward VIII as, as monarch, does the monarchy still exist today? Indeed, does Britain, as we know it, still exist today? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, and who, who knows? I mean, there are just too many variables there. We would certainly not have had Churchill's prime minister. Um, uh, Chamberlain would have continued and probably Halifax taken over from him. Uh, and um, who knows what would happen to the monarchy uh, under a, a Nazi state? Uh, I think it would have certainly had a very modest role to play. Um, and uh, it would probably not be as, as vibrant as it is now. Andrew Lowney, author of Traitor King, thank you very much indeed. Now, in his abdication address to the nation, Edward VIII mentioned the government and the man whose responsibility it was to tell him that up with his marriage uh, to Wallace Simpson, the establishment would not put Stanley Baldwin, the then Prime Minister. The ministers of the Crown, and in particular Mr Baldwin, the Prime Minister, have always treated me with full consideration. There has never been any constitutional difference between me and them, and between me and Parliament. Now, Sir Anthony Selden knows the history of the British Constitution better than most people. He's the preeminent political historian of the 20th century, and we spoke about what would have happened had Edward VIII ignored those entreaties from Stanley Baldwin and the Church of England and clung on to the throne in the face of all their opposition. Without a shadow of doubt, had he stayed on the throne, we wouldn't have a monarchy today. And consider there was the famous address he wanted to make at the time of the abdication crisis, um, appealing to the public over the heads of his ministers, making a direct personal appeal to the public to consider his desire to marry Wallace Simpson. In the end, he abided by the Constitution, um, that unwritten, uncodified convention that the monarch could only act with the advice of their ministers. So you think a sort of popular monarchy that he envisioned, you know, you know, with a direct political link between the king and the public, is totally would have been totally unsustainable? So Britain has a head of state, the monarchy, and it has a head of government, the prime minister, and it works and it's worked so well with Queen Elizabeth II because she has observed the correct uh, relationship uh, and has not tried to exert political power. Edward's father, George V, did try and exert political authority occasionally, uh, as did Victoria, and uh, though decreasingly so during the course of her 64-year-long reign. Look, it's easy to, to spin a, a yarn about Edward VIII as a, a man interested in the condition of the people, a populist, uh, a modernizer, uh, but it's false, and it's false for a number of reasons. Uh, there is a gene in the royal family which is not a good gene, 
and it turns out people who are not good people and they don't have uh, judgment and they don't have uh, true compassion or insight and they're too ready to be influenced by uh, highly uh, skillful, clever, manipulative people. And Edward VIII fell into all those traps and he was a weak and, and shallow man, very self-regarding, uh, um, pitying, uh, pitying speech to the nation on his abdication. The woman he chose was not a good uh, woman, uh, unlike uh, George VI's uh, wife, Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, and in every way his judgment was flawed, and like a lot of flawed people, uh, they go for impressionable people of the left or the right, and it was the right that had a particular allure for him, and uh, I think the proof is if you look at his life after he abdicated, what did he do? Uh, and he could have achieved so much, he could have been such a great uh, example, as uh, are some people who, who fall from grace and try for the rest of their lives to make good. But he was thoroughly uh, indulgent, uh, a shallow socialite in uh, Paris in the 1950s and 1960s, spending money that he didn't earn and that he didn't deserve. Uh, and not giving any kind of example or leadership. Uh, and I think it would have been like that as a, a monarch. I think those good intentions uh, to reach out would have soon disappeared in the uh, lap and the allure of endless champagne and charming uh, women and, uh, and social IT events. And he would have doomed the monarchy. Yeah, H.G. Wells called him a gadfly reformer and he, he would enrage his courtiers by picking up good courses, applying himself to them with, with great energy and devotion in the, in the early days, and then he would drop them when he became bored. Um, and, you know, it, it, there are reports uh, from the time of his tour of South America in the early 30s, a trade mission for the government, where you know, at the beginning of the tour, he's a, he's a model of, uh, you know, a, a, everything you want in a rule, and by the end he's turning up half drunk and scruffy and three hours late. It's a really interesting contrast, isn't it, between um, the impeccable, uh, you know, image of duty the Queen projects. We have no idea, um, really, what the Queen is interested in. She presents this sort of stoic <laughs> impression. She turns up to everything, or at least did when she was physically capable of doing so. Um, she's not driven by what excites her. And George V knew this, didn't he? Um, he said, when I am gone, the boy will ruin himself in, in 18 months. And he was desperate that he didn't have children so uh, Bertie and Lilibet as he called them George VI and the current Queen would get to the throne unhindered. So I mean look at the the pairs uh, look at Elizabeth and her sister Margaret I mean we can make a plausible set of excuses for the behaviour of Margaret but at the end of the day she could have done so much good but she became heavy drinking, heavy partying, heavy self-pity, heavy in indulgence, didn't sustain her uh, marriage, chose perhaps unwisely, look at Charles and, and Andrew. Um, and Charles, in contrast to Edward VIII as he became, uh, articulated 
populisty uh, things, or so people thought at the time, but he's stuck by them and he's seen off uh, the sneerers, most obviously about the whole green movement and the environment in which he has been consistent, as he has been about uh, what education uh, means. Uh, and so, and, and look back to, to George VI and Edward VIII. So there's something uh, about pairings, I think, of uh, both the good, the good, of course, never as good as we as they might appear to be, and the bad never quite as bad, but uh, nevertheless, it is a characterization that does seem to hold some water, uh, Patrick. Uh, and underlying all this is, with great responsibility, uh, goes a great uh, need for duty uh, and service to others rather than service to one's own pleasure. Uh, and if one pursues that policy, one won't make oneself happy. One will just have uh, a pile of pleasure with nothing to show for it. Whereas the queen who has eschewed pleasure has found enduring uh, happiness uh, for much of the time. And just briefly on one final point, we know almost too much about what Edward thought about everything. He called left-wing pacifist cranks. He moaned at ministers when they imposed sanctions on Mussolini. He was hugely fond of, as you've said, figures at the margins of British politics, be that Mosley or um, a pre-office Churchill. He was praised by Attlee for his um, genuine solicitude to the unemployed. Superficially, at least, those positions are quite radical. And, you know, you say that's style over substance. Um, Do you see any parallels with uh, you know, uh, you've already covered it briefly, but are such an such an outspoken between such an outspoken as the throne of Edward and Charles, who is perhaps much more in, outspoken and maybe more interventionist than his mother? Well, absolutely. I mean, I think that uh, the good prince, bad prince um, analogy can go uh, all the way. The good princess, bad princess, with Elizabeth and Margaret. Uh, we can make too much of it, but it does, um, it provides an interesting uh, point of comparison. I think that it is there clearly uh, with Charles, then all kinds of people all around the world will try and attract, uh, make um, the, the, themselves very attractive to you uh, to try to inveigle you off in this or that direction. And you have to either have judgment, uh, which uh, they haven't, or you have to be prepared to listen to people who do. Uh, and that's, I think, going to be a very interesting point with another pair of princes who are William and Harry. I mean, has Harry married a good woman uh, in Meghan or not? I think being charitable, the judgment, uh, the jury is out on that one. And will the causes that he espouses, will they turn out to be flies in the night? As for the courses that Edward VIII uh, followed, uh, pick them up and then drop them uh, when you get bored or they come out of fashion, uh, or will he have the inner character to sustain uh, those courses? Now, I think uh, with Harry, I think he has a lot more substance. And, you know, it's difficult. It's difficult to be uh, the younger sibling of somebody who, who is already or will become the monarch. Obviously, in uh, Edward VIII's case, he did become the monarch himself. There are enormously difficult challenges. It's very easy to be uh, clever and snipey uh, from the, the, uh, the side. But nevertheless, the principle stands, who are you there to serve? If you're there to serve your own pleasure, you will fail and fall. 
uh, if you're there to serve the country in the way that Her Majesty has done so superbly, then you will uh, be honoured uh, and you will fulfil the duty and you will see the monarchy, help the monarchy continue uh, deep into the 21st century. So all to play for. That's all we've got time for on today's episode. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcast from. Matt will be back on Monday. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.